0: As we're about to enter your word, first and foremost, we're, we're just humbled, humbled that you, the God of the universe, would speak forth anything to us, but yet you, you've chosen, Lord, to speak forth your heart and to speak forth truths that, that we need to anchor ourselves to in our own journeys. Father, we know that there's a preparation right now as the children of Israel have been redeemed and you're about to take them into the wilderness. You're about to take them, Lord, and give them your law, to give them your heart, to try to get Egypt out of them. But, Father, there's preparation for the journey, and we want to know those things. We want to know those truths. We want to be anchored in those. And so, Father, as you've Placed this chapter here by your spirit for a reason. We want to receive fully everything that you have for us. So give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. Truly, we ask that you would take your word and give it life. That you would truly allow this to encourage us and direct us and to simply wash our feet. We are redeemed, we know that, by the blood of the Lamb. We are place ourselves under that blood, and now, Lord, we ask that you would prepare us for the journey, teach us the things we need to know. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both, of both man and beast, it is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out, on the month... A bib. And so the Lord is now first and foremost as they're about to begin their journey. He lets them know that I want you to consecrate to me all the firstborn. Now we do know that the everyone that was in the house under the blood that the firstborn would be spared. The, the death was already satisfied and so they could now enter in to this journey that God has with all the firstborn being redeemed. But he wants them to know that he's saying, listen, you have to consecrate to me all the firstborn. You have to set them apart. The firstborn is going to be the Lord's and only the Lord's. Now, we do know, and as we've, we've studied this before, back in the fourth chapter of Exodus, verse 22, when God told Moses to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. He wanted Israel to be set apart. And as he sets apart Israel as the firstborn, it's dedicated to him and it's consecrated to him. We begin to see that there's this directive through the scripture about the firstborn. I want to share with you first and foremost a a passage found in Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, let me just read to you just a couple of verses. I want to read verse 15, and I want to read verse 18. So in Colossians 1 15, it says, he is the image, speaking of Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. And in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. So two things that we need to note about Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn, we sometimes think that it has the connotation of being the first one that is born. And in one sense, yes, it is. But the firstborn also is means preeminence. So when Esau was born first, Jacob wanted the birthright and although he was born second, then Esau sold that birthright to Jacob, and so he then became preeminent. He became the, the overseer over the spiritual aspects of the home, and Esau was then put under a subjugation and in the spiritual things. So we understand that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So he is basically the stamped image of God. He is God, and he is you know, the, the head over all creation. And in verse 18, it says he's the head of the body, the church, um, who is the beginning. And so we see that not only is Israel the firstborn, Jesus Christ is the firstborn, And as the firstborn, he's the head of this body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. So as Jesus is the the, the one to raise from the dead. Now, understand that as people would die, they would go to paradise, or they would go to Hades, so they would be in that place of Abraham's bosom. But we see here that Jesus Christ was the one who resurrected. He rose from the dead. And he was the firstborn, the preeminent one of the dead. And so he's the foremost one, the leader of all who will rise from the dead. So as we look to Christ being the firstborn, it gives us a little bit of an understanding of what God is trying to say to the nation Israel. Saying that, listen, Um, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, the ones who would be preeminent in their houses, the oldest. A couple of passages to jot down for you, note takers. The first is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. I want to read to you verses 27 and through 29. It declares this: By faith, this is Moses. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And by faith they passed through the Red Sea um, as dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. So we understand that, that Moses here, it's he as this one who's the the director of the events that are going in, that mouthpiece of God, we understand that that Moses over and over and over does this by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And this is some things that are key to that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, he adds to this, he makes this statement, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn. In other words, to with all the others that were there, to the church of the firstborn, in other words, the the body of Christ, who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the saints of the just men made perfect. So again, we begin to see here that that what Moses does, all these things are by faith, and we understand that the consecration of the firstborn is also going to be a step of faith as they go through this. A passage to be aware of as well is this, that we were looking to Jesus Christ being that firstborn, Luke chapter 2, verse 21 and 22 through 23, makes this declaration, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they, Mary and Joseph, brought him Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now notice verse 23 of Luke 2, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. As we begin to see here that every male that comes through now needs to be set apart for God, the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel with both man and beast, it is mine. God makes this declaration that the firstborn of all through this blood of the substitute that I provided for you. I gave that directive of a substitute. This now is my blessing to the firstborn. I've redeemed them. Now you need to give them over to me. Set them apart for me. One other passage to be aware of found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to read verse 19 through 20. It just talks about how we are God's. But he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we begin to see here the the, the heart in which he does as this is the firstborn. We need to make sure that as we are the redeemed, as the firstborn are the redeemed, we are now part of this body of Christ, which are the redeemed. Keep in mind that that same truth comes over to us. As we are part of that body of Christ, we now have been purchased, so glorify God. And it's consecrated him. We set ourselves apart for him. And as we do this, it's, it's our, our joy to do this. So Moses says now, After verse 2, consecrate to me or set apart to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb of the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. God claims them. I'm the one that gave the substitute. I'm the one that brought the redemption. I'm the one that stopped the destroyer from coming in. These are now mine. I preserve their lives. Now dedicate their lives to me. And so Moses said in verse 3, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, God himself really wants them to understand that when they come back to say, um, oh, remember what it was back in Egypt, how we had the leeks and the onions and all the stuff that were so wonderful. God here makes a statement right off the bat. Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of of the house of bondage. This is what God defines Egypt as. Now, we know that Egypt for us as Christians are a type of the world. And as a type of the world, we begin to see here that, that it is, the world puts us in bondage. As we go over to the world and the world's systems, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And as we give ourselves over to the world, then we become slaves to the world. We become the bondage of that world. And so whatever system we set ourselves up to obey, we are that one slaves. And so here he says, I'm taking you when you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage for by verse three, the strength of the hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. So he makes a statement. He says, consecrate to me Because when you went out of Egypt, understand what happened. You left this house of bondage for by the strength of hand. And it wasn't your hand, Israel. The Lord brought you out of this place. It was by his mighty hand. And so he makes this statement, no leavened bread shall be eaten. And it's important for us to recognize it's God who does the work. It's God who brings us out of the world. It's God who has redeemed us. It was his hand. It was his strength. And so that's why we begin to see here that, you know, we're in John fifteen five. He says, without me, you can do nothing. In Mark chapter 10, verse 27, um, with me, all things are possible. With God, we can do things, but without him, there's nothing we can do, but with him, everything is feasible. And so when, he, when we look to this, it's, it's his strength of hand. God brings us out of this place. And then he goes on in verse 4 to make this declaration. On this day, you are going out in the month of Abib. Now, we've talked about this last week. The month of Abib is once they get to Babylon, Babel, the Babylonians change Abib to Nisan. It simply means the green ear. It's in that, that time of um, where we would see it as um, March, April is right around that time in our calendar. But this becomes the first of the, the, the months to them. It becomes their, not the, the civil month, but the, the, the ceremonial, the religious month. And so he says, on this day, you're going out in the month of Abib. And it shall be, verse five, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. So he makes a statement at the very end of verse 3. After he says, the Lord brought you out of this place, he makes a statement, no leavened bread shall be eaten. He shifts now to say, now once I have redeemed you, I have brought you out with my strength, with my hand. I'm the one that brings you out. He then comes and he makes the statement at the end of verse 3, no leavened bread shall be eaten. And then he says at the end of verse 5, and you shall keep this service in this month. We need to keep this time of the unleavened bread. We call it the feast of the unleavened bread. It says in verse 6: Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. So, as we recognize here that you're going to have this portion of this unleavened bread be for seven days, and of course, on the seventh day there's going to be a feast. Now, if you back up to chapter 12 for just a second, In verse 16, he makes a statement, speaking of this unleavened bread. Verse 15, of course, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove the leaven from your houses. Whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And then he makes this statement on verse 16. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. So the first day there is a feast. There's this holy Sabbath, this day of celebration. On the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No of work shall be done in them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So we see that chapter 12, verse 16 says it's the first and the seventh day. So we're looking at here, God says, I've redeemed you, I've redeemed you, I've redeemed you. As soon as he says in verse 3, I brought you out of that place, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Understand that when it comes to the redemption that God does for his children, when it comes to the deliverance away from the world or out of the world that God gives to his children, the very next statement that he says is there should be a form of purity, There should be no unleavened bread eaten. There has to be where we've talked about it before how what leaven is, how leaven is seen there in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse seven through eight, he says, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the celebration, live the life not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is the heart of God. He wants us to, once he's delivered us with his hand, he says, I'm asking for you, I've delivered you so that you wouldn't have to be in bondage to the world, that you wouldn't have to have this malice, that you wouldn't get to have this sincerity and the truth. You would be able to walk in a form of purity. The blessing of what God does is this. When he says in verse 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. I don't know if you have ever thought prior to being a Christian that purity is a drag. Purity is no fun. Um, And they think that sinning is so much fun that sinning is such a wonderful thing. Now, granted, if sinning was no fun at all, nobody would want to do it. I understand that. But eventually what happens is as you sin and sin, eventually that sin begins to weigh on you. It begins to reap its rewards from you it begins to wear you down and wear you out and it begins to rob you of your joy and where you once thought that you were in control all of a sudden you find out that you're in bondage to sin but what verse 6 says here of Exodus chapter 13 he says seven days you shall eat unleavened bread on the seventh day there shall be a feast it's a celebration and I love the heart of it because what God begins to determine is this is there's In this purity, there should be this form of celebration. We already looked at Exodus 12, 16, where it talked about that celebration at the first part of the week, the last part of the week. It should begin with celebration, end with celebration. Purity for a Christian should not be a downer. Purity for a Christian should be, there's joy in this. I'm not having to be in bondage to the world. I don't have to give into this. There's a power that I can walk that says, I'm, I'm now walking with this unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I'm walking in purity. I'm walking in joy. And for a Christian to not be in bondage of the sin, I mean, haven't you, once you realize that you've been forgiven from a sin, you rejoice? And then when you say, I'm not going to walk in that sin, and the first time you say, I'm not going to do it, and you don't, there's a joy, there's a celebration that happens. And that's what he says here that's supposed to be with this unleavened bread. That you're going to go through this time and you're going to eat this unleavened bread, but you eat the unleavened bread directly after the redemption, directly after it's God's strength that brings you out His hand brings you out of this place. And so once he redeems you, there's this point of purity. And so again, now in verse seven, leavened bread shall be eaten seven days and no leaven bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. So in other words, you don't carry it on your body. You don't carry it in your home. And I think it's important to realize that, that if you do have things that cause you to sin, then just get rid of it. It just, you, you, you do that. The, the Lord says, hey, if, if, you're, if your eye offends you, you're right, pluck it out, cast it from you. If your right hand offends you, cut it off, cast it from you. Deal radically with sin. Don't just simply say, oh, you know, okay, well, I'm just going to kind of put it here for later, and maybe I'll just ignore it, and I'm going to show myself strong because I can actually look at it and resist it. Well, that's just a lie from the enemy, and it's not what God tells you to do. He says, just get rid of it. Verse 7, no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. If it causes you to sin, get rid of it. Deal with it in a radical way. Just cast it from you. And then in verse 8, he makes this statement. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. And I think it's just so amazing that here when you actually walk out this truth, you're walking in purity, that you're going to tell your son that in the day that you do this, he says, this is done because of what the Lord did for me. And I, I think it's important to really ask that question. Is there anything in your life that you need to tell people, this is what the Lord did for me. He redeemed me. He's, he's, he's purified me. This is what his heart has been. And, and I think so often, you know, do others question, you know, why do you do what you do? And can you answer, it's because of the Lord? Because Jesus taught us, this is what, do your deeds in such a way that when they see those deeds, they glorify your Father which are in heaven. And I think it's important that if the way that you live your life, that people aren't questioning, why do you live your life that way? They're not questioning it. One of two things, either you're just around a lot of Christians, but even them sometimes they'll question it. And maybe you're just not around the the non-believer. But I think it's important that that there are going to be those that are going to question what's going on. And you're able to tell them, I do this, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when he redeemed me. This is what God has saved me from. This is what God has brought me to. He's brought me to himself and he saved me from the world. And, and it's a celebration that I live this life of purity. That I don't want to go and, and to, to, to yuck it up with the guys when they're saying things that are off-colored or, or when they're, you know, um going off in an area that isn't pure. You just you don't want that. You walk away from it. So in verse 9, he makes this statement. He says, it shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. A couple of things I want to make a note here. He said, it shall be as a sign to you on your hand a memorial between your eyes. Now, we understand that the Jews have taken this portion literally. And he says, it should be a sign on your hand, a memorial between your eyes. The Lord's law may be in your mouths. So it's interesting that they want these things, these signs on their hands, memorials between their eyes. If you remember when we went through the book of Matthew, when we were in chapter 23, there in verse 5, it talks about, as the Lord is talking about the Pharisees and what they're doing, he makes this statement in verse 5, "...but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments." The Pharisees would take this portion literally and they would take and they would bind it upon their wrist. They would place it upon their forehead. And so within this, they would make this sign and they would make large boxes. The Pharisees would put on these, these and huge boxes, not just a little box, just say, okay, here's a reminder. Um, But they would make a show of this box that here, as they're taking this literally, it shall be a sign to you on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. They do this in a sense to make it literal in the same way as the enemy, Satan, tries to mimic here what God is saying. If you're familiar with that passage in Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, let me read it to you. It declares this He causes all, both small and great, the Antichrist. He causes all, both small and great, poor and free, slave. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark. On their right hand or on their foreheads. So we see that this is a portion in which here they make that statement I want these things as a sign. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you know that passage. It's called the Shema, Hero Israel. But it says this, I'm going to read verses four through nine, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you shall be in your heart. Now note that, first and foremost, let it be in your heart. Second of all, you shall teach them to your diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Verse eight, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So rather than having this portion say, this is a literal thing, where in verse nine, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We understand that here he says, it's gonna be a sign to you. Bind them to your hand. In other words, what you do, let these things be the guiding of your hands. Let these things be the guiding of your eyes. A verse to look at is this. Let's look a little further into Exodus chapter 13 and look at verse 15 and 16, just so you can kind of see what it is that the Jews did and really what God is trying to tell the nation of Israel through Moses. Well, in verse 15, it came to pass of Exodus 13, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of the beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Now he's saying the redemption of the firstborn. And he says this about the redemption of the firstborn, it shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes for by the strength of the hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So understand as the nation of Israel, those who are religious, take the Shema, write it on a scroll, stick it on the phylactery and they bind it to their hand. They bind it to their, their forehead. They hang it over their head, and so it places it with a leather strap upon their forehead as a front lip between their eyes. They do that to the Shema, but it's interesting that here the Lord says in verse 9, do it as a memorial for unleavened bread. And in verse 16, as a sign on your hand is frontless before your eyes, do it as a memorial for the redemption of the firstborn. And it's interesting that when you pick and choose what you want to do, I'm going to pick and choose this phylactery to be part of Deuteronomy 6, but I'm not going to choose the phylactery to have anything about the unleavened bread. I'm not going to choose the phylactery to have anything about redeeming of the firstborn. And then he makes this statement again, here in verse 9, it shall be as a sign to you on your hand, as memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. So, are you going to walk around with a phylactery in your mouth? I mean, how literal are you going to be taking these things? And it's interesting that what happens is this that we have a tendency to take certain portions of scriptures and to apply them in that literal sense. And as we walk in them, we feel really good about ourselves. But what happens is this, if you take the whole of the word, you realize that anything that you want to walk to, you know, say, I'm so proud of myself, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Understand, anything we can do, it's the grace of God. And the Lord has gone on to teach us where he says, if you're thinking that you're doing this right, understand, God would say that the law isn't that physical, but it's the spiritual. In other words, if you've said the law says do not murder, but if I'm angry at my brother without a cause, you know, I've already committed murder in my heart. It says do not commit adultery, but if I've lusted after someone, then I've already committed adultery in my heart. And so we see here that they want to take this and make a sign out of it. And so they they choose to use Deuteronomy 6 as binding them. But at the same time, here in verse 9 and here in verse 16, it says it is a sign, it is something that needs to be done. And so what he's saying is this, I want in your mind, in your heart, in your life, these things to be a continual reminder So as you walk the Christian life, there should be this constant motivation in your heart that I do this walk of purity because I've been redeemed by the strong hand of God. And as he's redeemed me, he didn't redeem me to just do what the world does. He's redeemed me out of the world so that I can go and have this life that will glorify him. And that's what we desire to do. We take this life, the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is my heart. This is my life. This is what I want to do. I have been bought. I have been purchased. You know, So I'm not my own. I've been purchased by Christ. And so as we look to those truths, as we look to those hearts, we begin to see again, this is the reality um, that we were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God. In other words, walk in this place of purity. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And it's all about this aspect of purity. Remember now, prior to where Paul wrote to that passage that we already quoted in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, he does say this in verse 18, which is leading up to that. Flee sexual immorality, for every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit you have been purchased and so I think it's important that what we see these things is it needs to be this continual reminder and as a as a Christian you know you can say you know love the Lord your God and and write it on a tattoo on your hand you can say you know walk a life of purity of the unleavened bread let no leaven be a part of you let no leaven be a part of your house. And you can jot those things down. You can say I've been redeemed, but it's all about what? Walking in this and having this as this forefront of our heart is a constant reminder, this is why I do what I do. See, I walk in purity, not, not so I can pat myself on the back. I walk in purity because he who saved me is pure, and I want to now be an imitator of him. I want to be a part of his body, and I don't want to soil that body. I don't want to bring dishonor to that body. I want to bring honor to it. As we begin to see here, it's about living a life with these two powerful truths. I have been redeemed through the power of God and his strength and his grace and his love for me. I've been redeemed. There was nothing... That was good in me that said, Oh, yeah, I'm going to redeem you because you're so wonderful. He just said, I'm going to choose to redeem you. And now that I've been redeemed, I don't want to continue to live that life I used to. I want to now make my life something that would glorify God. I'm going to fail. We're all going to fail, but it's one of those things that we want to do this so that He's glorified. And so, as, as we go through this now again in verse 9, it shall be a sign to you on your hand as a moral between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So again, you see these two things paralleled, paralleled, paralleled. I've redeemed you unleavened bread. I've redeemed you unleavened bread. This is the same thing that we looked at in chapter 12. After the redemption, he talked about the unleavened bread. It is he saved us, but he didn't save us to continue to sin. He saved us and he gave us the power now, his word, his heart, his spirit, that we could live a life of purity. Now it won't be perfect purity, but it's going to be a purity that as the sanctification process goes, it's going to be more and more and more. And if you're curious, on Wednesday we did a study through Second Peter chapter one, where there was this whole area of growth into maturity. And so we looked at that. If you're curious, just you know, tune in, go to the, um, Facebook or YouTube, and, and pull up that that first or Second Peter chapter one study. And just go through that portion again. It's just a powerful way of Peter saying, if you do these things, if you add to this and add to this and add to this, and, and eventually you add to brotherly kindness, that phileo, and you add to love, the agape, that if you do these things, you will never stumble. And it's this portion of growth, maturity, that as we walk in those areas, Peter says, you're, you're going to have this point of purity. You're going to have a growth. You're going to have this ability so you're not going to be falling, you're not going to be stumbling. Now in verse 10, he says, you shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. So with this unleavened bread, with this feast of unleavened bread, it's a celebration on the first day, it's a celebration on the second day, but it's a whole understanding of purity, purity removing the leaven and i think that there are certain times in our own lives that we do need to look to the lord and say god is there something that you know you want that is 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 leaven in my life that is is corrupting other areas of my life is there something that you want to point out to me is there something that your spirit your word wants to direct me in that i can now grow in and come to this point of saying okay god i'm going to set this apart for you and that's where I'm going to be leaning towards. And so he says in verse 10, keep, you shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. So, of course, the nation of Israel will have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's going to be attached to the Passover, to the redemption, and the purity. And this is something that is not going to be just a once in a while, but every single year at this time during this month of Abib, which is now going to be the first of the ceremonial months, It's now going to be a celebration, that you celebrate this thing right off the bat. And so this begins the the beginning of your walk, the beginning of your year. The redemption, the purification, let you be focused on it, reminded on it, living this truth. And then he says in verse 11, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you. So when he brings you in, he says in verse 12, you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is every firstborn that comes from an animal, which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. So he makes a statement here that he says, when you come into this land, every male that's born is mine. You're going to redeem it. And and as it's the male, you're going to redeem it with the money. And so you redeem your male. But if it's an animal, you do not redeem the animal. Um, If it is a clean animal, it is simply the Lord's. You do not redeem. Keep it. You do not take it. You do not accept it. You do not say, Well, let me give you money for it. No, it is the Lord's. In Leviticus chapter 27, verse 26, it makes this statement But the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate, whether it is an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord's. So, if you have an oxen, if you have a sheep, and you say, oh, I love this oxen, or I needed this oxen, and it's the firstborn, whether you need it or not, it's God's. The, the first fruit of it is God's, and you give it to him. It's sacrificed. You do not, as he says, you don't say, well, I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord, but I'm going to still use it, or I'm going to try to buy it back. No, the firstborn is the Lord's, only the Lord's, and and you you don't buy it back, you don't redeem it, you, you break its neck. It is God's. But he does make a statement here in Leviticus twenty-seven, verse twenty-seven if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation, and shall add one fifth to it, or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold according to the valuation. So he makes a statement, but let's come back to our statement or our our passage here in Exodus thirteen, verse thirteen. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and all the firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, let's just say that you have an animal, and according to this animal where the Scripture teaches there are certain animals that will be clean and certain animals that will be unclean. And if you have an unclean animal, let me just share a passage with you in Leviticus chapter 11. I want to read verses two through four so you can kind of see what the the text is saying. But it says, speak to the children of Israel saying, these are the animals which you may eat. Among all the animals that are on the earth, among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The and the camel, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The roxhor, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The swine, though it divides the hooves, And has cloven hooves, yet it does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. So there's a directive that he gives. It has to have a cloven hoof, and it has to chew the cud. Now, if you've ever seen a cow, a cow is something that will it it has toes. And so when you have those toes, it divides the hoof. Now, a horse has just one solid, um, you know, foot. It has one solid hoof. It, it, it just, you know, when, when, you, when you're putting on a horseshoe, you don't see it split. It's just one hoof. That's the same thing that the camel has. So the, the camel, although it chews the cud, has a foot much like the horse has a foot much like the donkey, they have a hoof and it's not cloven, it's not split like a cow. So understand that what he's saying here in Exodus 13 verse 13, the every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. So if you want a beast of burden, if you want the donkey, well keep in mind that the donkey is unclean you can't sacrifice something unclean to the lord so he says what i will do for a donkey is this is i will allow a substitute for the donkey every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb but if you will not redeem it then you simply destroy it you you don't get to keep the firstborn even of a donkey the firstborn every first part is God's. And so as we see here, this is that understanding where whatever we have the first part of it belongs to God. Everything is is that first part is his. That's where we have that understanding of tithing, where we have the understanding of whatever God you provide for me, I understand the first of it is always yours. How do we, we honor you with it? And so when it comes to this the firstborn verse 12 everything that opens the womb every firstborn that comes from an animal you the of the male shall be the lord you dedicate it to him of course you don't sacrifice male men but you redeem them through um this is the worth this is where we give them to the lord but the donkey that which is unclean you shall redeem it with a lamb and you will not if you will not redeem it you simply destroy it um and all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So we begin to see here the, the, the heart of, of what God begins to show, that with everything that we see here, the, the the firstborn needs to be redeemed. I want to take you to one portion here. Um, it's very similar, but just jot it down. Exodus chapter 31 verse 20. The firstborn of, of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you were not redeeming, you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of the sons you shall redeem. And none of them shall appear before me empty-handed. That as, as the, the firstborn come, there's this offering of them to the Lord, the worth of that firstborn. And now we come back to verse 14 of Exodus 13. And so it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying, what is this? You shall say to him by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So again, that reminder is Egypt is bondage. Egypt isn't free. Egypt isn't past. Egypt isn't all the leeks and onions. Egypt is bondage. And when you act out the scenario of the very firstborn of your your of your herd, the very firstborn of, of this you know, animal that you have, you dedicate it to the Lord. It's His. And, and so when your son sees this act that you do, verse 14, it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, What is this? Why are you still continuing to do this act of giving the first to God? You will say to him, Oh, son, by the strength of hand, by God's mighty power, he redeemed us out of Egypt. He freed us. And verse 15, and it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but of all the firstborn of my sons, I redeem. As he redeemed his firstborn Israel, God says Israel is my firstborn. I'm taking him out. I've redeemed him. And so we begin to see here as we look to those lambs that were in all of the homes eventually. He says, you shall kill it. Speaking of, there's, there's this symbol or this type of one lamb is represented to all the lambs. And of course, that points to Jesus Christ. But we begin to see here that he says, all of this is redeemed because God is the one who redeemed it. We dedicate it to him. And then he goes, verse 16, he says, And it shall be as a sign on your hands, on the frontlets of your eyes, for by the strength of the Lord, the strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. I want this to be a reminder, a testimony of who God is. And now in verse 17, Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt, to bring clarity to what's going on here in verse seventeen, there was a trade route that went from Egypt and it followed the way up north and and it went." Straight north, it would curve over to the east, and eventually would come through the land of the Philistines. And that was a trade route. It was traveled long. It was the the roads were wide. There was stops for food, stops for water. It was a well traveled road, and it was uh, an established road. And God says, it came to pass when Pharaoh let them go, God did not lead them by that comfortable road he didn't lead them by the road that would have taken them to the promised land right away he chose not to do that now there were dangers that would be on the road and of course you know God knew those dangers as they they were but but keep in mind that as we see this here that God makes this statement he did not lead them by the way of the land of Philistines although That was near, for God says, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. He was concerned that when that battle would start raging, that the children of Israel weren't tried, they weren't tested. And eventually, the children of Israel would know the victory of battles. They would understand how battles are fought. They would understand how War would take place. When they would enter Canaan, they would see that God would fight for them. And eventually they would would come to this, this point where God is going to bring them into land, but he doesn't do so right away. I want you to understand that God does not allow baby Christians to be tested like he tests mature Christians. I don't know if you've ever seen that, that when you were a new Christian, it was like, oh, I don't really have any struggles. I I pray and God answers. I pray and I answer it. I mean, that's what it was in my life. I thought this is the most amazing thing. I would pray and God would move. I would pray and God would move. And it happened that way for a long, long time when I first came to the Lord. And then I began to pray and then things didn't happen. And then God said, do you still trust me? Am I still good? Like, I do trust you, and you are good because you've proven this. I know who you are. You've you've set a baseline. And so, although nothing happened, I still realized that God was good. But I was being tested, it was more mature. And then as I grew a little older in the Lord, I would pray for things and then they would actually get worse. And then it's like, okay, Lord, I prayed. Why are things getting worse? He said, Am I still good? Do you still trust me? And of course, those answers were yes. But when it comes to the children of Israel, I think it's important to note that that God will not allow them to be tested or tempted beyond what they are able to bear. A couple of passages that I want to just run by you. The first is found in Psalm 37, verse 23. It simply makes this statement, "...the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way." So if God does not allow the children of Israel to go up during this, this path that is traveled by traders, it's a it's a land that has food, a land that has water. The steps of these men, the steps of the nation of Israel are ordered by the Lord. God is the one who is ordered them, God is the one who is moving them. Another passage to be aware of, jot it down, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So as God begins to lead them, they're his sons. He's going to lead them by the Spirit, not the way the rest of the world goes. He has another whole path for them. And I think it's important to recognize what it is that God is doing, what it is that that God is wanting to do in and through this journey that he's going to have them on. A passage to be aware of, let me read this one in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Let me read it to you. It makes this declaration, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God isn't going to put a baby Christian in the same light that he will put large Christians, mature Christians. He's not going to do the same thing with the babies as he's going to do with the more mature Christians. There's a passage in Deuteronomy Chapter 8, I want to read verses 2 through 3. God says this, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. God is bringing his children through another way that he could mature them. He can grow them. Not that he can just bring them right into this radical test that they're going to stumble in and fail miserably. God knows once they see war, they're going to be, they're going to be moving on. And so As we we look to what Scripture begins to teach, in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it makes a statement, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That the nation of Israel would go up and immediately go into where the Philistines are, immediately begin the battling at that point, they would have stumbled, they would have fallen. And so we begin to see here that that God is literally protecting them by not bringing them through right away. In Psalm 103, let me read verse 13 and 14 to you. Psalm 103, beginning in verse 13, says, There I am. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. God is not going to bring a a baby Christian into this huge, massive trial. Now, granted, and there are these times where as a non-Christian, we are receiving the fruit of what we've planted, we are reaping what we have sown, and with that, people have this come-to-Jesus moment. But God wasn't the one who put you into that test. As, as a Christian, you know, as a non-Christian, that's what drove you to the Lord, but, but once you are redeemed, what God does is this. He gives you only what you're able to handle, and, and no more no, no less, and this is where we see the the heart of God and how He works. Another passage, just to be aware of, I want to read it to you. And in Psalm one hundred five, verse thirty seven, says, um, "He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among His tribes. He gave them a strength; He gave them everything that would He would they would need. And He doesn't, with giving them everything they need, put you to where you're going to stumble and where you're going to fall." And so it's important to realize that when you're mature, God is going to give you a whole different test. Example, Genesis chapter 22, Abraham living by faith. Abraham has grown in his faith, grown in his faith. Finally, he has a son. Wow, faith. And what does God tell Abraham to do to his son? I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and take him to this mountain. I want you to sacrifice him there. That's a mature test. He doesn't do this to these young Christians. And so understand verse 17, what it says is God in his grace isn't going to take these new baby children of his and bring them into radical tests. He's going to watch over them. He's going to train them he's going to teach them he's going to mature them and eventually he is going to bring them into the land but he's going to do it as he matures them as he reveals certain truths to them then he's going to allow them to grow So it says here in verse 17, then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and they return to Egypt and then everything is for naught. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So at this point, none of them are feeble they now begin to go in orderly ranks they're 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 following uh um they're not chaotic as they're fleeing they're not running in fear but they're set up in orderly ranks and then in verse 19 Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for he had placed the children of Israel under the solemn oath saying God will surely visit you and shall keep and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Now, that passage is there in Genesis chapter 50. The last couple of verses simply make this statement, Genesis 50 verses, I'll read verses 24 through 26 so you can see the context. Joseph said to his brother, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph knew what was gonna happen, knew that God was gonna be the one to bring them out. So Joseph, verse 26, died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin of Egypt. So through this, we begin to see the heart of what's going on. Now, one other passage I want you to be aware of as it comes here where he says, you know, I want you to take my bones, and I want you to, to to bring them, you know, out of the land of Egypt, and I want you to bring them um, to the promised land. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, it makes this declaration, the only time that Joseph is, and his works are here in the hall of faith, isn't what he had done previously. But verse 22 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. God is going to lead you out. And he gave instructions concerning his bones. So Joseph, by faith, gave the direction that they were going to leave Egypt. He also gave direction that they should take his bones. So we see how verse 19 is a fulfillment of the faith of Joseph as he's called, Don't Leave My Bones Here. So in verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel on a solemn most, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. And they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham, At the edge of the wilderness. So rather than going north, they begin to dip south and head a little bit to the east, which is unique because that's not the direction that we would normally go. What's the quickest route from A to B? And this is important now, verse 21. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in the pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. God himself is going to now guide them from the moment that they leave Egypt. He's guiding them through this pillar. What is this pillar? A couple of verses I want you to be aware of. First is found in Psalm 105, verse 39. It says, he spread a cloud for their covering. When it says he spread a cloud, what it means is this, that as you go through the desert, I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, people walking through the desert and they're exhausted and the sun is beating down on them and the sun is beating down on them. Well, what God has done is he's put a cloud for a covering. He spread out a cloud over the top of them so that they would always be in the shade. You leave that cloud, you're back in the sun. You come back under the cloud and, and you're there in the shade. And so we see that this is what happened. He spread a cloud for a covering, so. There's a pillar of a cloud and then it's spread out over them. And then it says this, he spread out a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. And so within this cloud during the day, it was this pillar during the day. It was a cloud in the evening. It was fire. And this is how God would bring it. And so through this now, I want to read to you a portion In Isaiah chapter 4, I want to read verse 5 and 6, so just jot it down. Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flame of fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime. And from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from the storm and from the rain. It's so interesting that as he says, the Lord has washed away, verse 4, the filth of the daughters of Zion purged the blood of Jerusalem from amidst by the spirit of judgment, by the spirit of burning, the Lord is going to create above every dwelling place in Mount Zion. God says, above you, I'm going to give you this spiritual symbol there is going to be a cloud over you during the day, light by night. So when darkness comes, God says, I'm going to be a light. And where the burning of the sun, the the scorching, he says, I want what you do to be done in coolness. It's no longer going to be the, 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 the sweat, understand that the priests are always going to put on these linen garments. are not putting on wool garments or linen garments. He says, I don't want you to have to, to sweat with what's going on. And so understand that after they were redeemed and God said, purge out the lemon, the, the, the leaven, God gives them this cloud. And so when you see why they had an orderly transition out they all followed this cloud. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. When the cloud went, they went. And, and so you begin to see that the whole nation of Israel sees when it's time to go. The cloud begins to move. The cloud is moving. We got to pack up. We're ready to go. When the cloud stops, okay, the cloud has stopped. Let's unpack. Let, let's, let's set up our, our camps. And this is so beautiful because the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in the pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day or night. So if they travel by night, God says, I'm going to illuminate your path. As you go by the day, I'm going to allow you to walk in the coolness of the day. I'm going to allow you to walk in the coolness of this shade that is here. And this is the beauty of what God does. Now, we're going to see more about this pillar, more about this As we go through, but I wanted you to understand first and foremost that that they received this after they were delivered. And this cloud, this guidance, this light that they were led by, this cloud that that brought them this comfort was a gift. They didn't earn anything that's here. They they, they, no one says, oh wow, you know, we've earned this, this this light, we've earned this thing. I think it's important that that this this cloud was a gift. It was a place of comfort to them. And not only was it a place of comfort, but this cloud guided them. They, they needed to look t- and keep their eyes upon that cloud, whether it was the cloud during the day or the fire during the night. They kept their eyes focused on that, glued on that. And what does it mean? Don't turn to the right or the left, but keep your eyes solid on the Lord. Look to him. Look straight at him. Keep your eyes set upon him. And to realize that he is going to, by his grace, guide us and lead us. And so all this is now the preparation to the journey. So now that you begin to see this preparation, now when we get into chapter 14, now we're going to begin to see the journey begin. But understand that before the journey begins, there's two mindsets that you have to lock into. The redemption that God redeemed the firstborn, Israel was the firstborn, we're part of the firstborn of Jesus Christ as we're part of his body. He redeems the firstborn and then the the leaven needs to be purged out. There should be a purity that comes with it. And it should be set up, as we've been noting, this continual reminder of what God has done. Let that be our guide. And then once we start the walk, keep in mind that God in his grace is not going to give to this baby Christian more than they can handle. But he's going to use this as a guide to say, follow me. Follow me here, follow me here. And there's some paths that we think, well, surely this is the path that we should go. This is the path that seems like it's the wisest, but that's earthly wisdom. That's not God. God wants to take us into a path that's gonna train us to who he is. God is gonna take us onto a path that's gonna show us what, what, what he is going to do. And I think it's just so important to realize that as we go through these, these things, as we go through these paths, this is why God is doing it. He takes us into a way, again Deuteronomy 8 verse 2, and he leads you all these ways through these paths in the wilderness to humble us and to test us, to know what was in our heart. And he wants to say, I'm I'm going to show you what's going on in you. I'm going to show you more about me. This is why God is leading him through another path, not let's just go right to the promised land. There's growth that needs to take place, but the growth is is set directly after I've been redeemed and I'm going to seek to purify myself and purify my walk and purify my life and purify my house and, and purify my thoughts. I want that to say, Lord, if it's not of you, let's get rid of those things radically, you know, move those things away that we can walk this walk that we can grow and we can be sanctified and we can mature as Christians to learn more about who you are and to learn more about where I am and where my failures are and where you're going to strengthen me and you're going to provide for me I want to know all these things that it's about you and it's always been about you so to that end, we begin to see this is the very beginning of the journey. And so just things to, to lock in in your own mind for your own walk. What is the beginning of my journey with the Lord? What do I need to do? Father, we are so grateful for this word in your heart, how good you are, that you have redeemed us. And Father, if there's any who's, who's listening that, that think, I, I, I've never walked in purity. I don't even know if I've been redeemed. Father, show them. All they have to do is, is apply the blood to their lives. Just apply the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I know you shed your blood for me. Just, just ask him into your heart. Recognize his work. Come under the blood. And as you do, realize that he's not going to give you any more than you can handle. Um, yeah, he's going to ask for purity, but purity is a good thing. It's not, it's not a downer. It's, it's not horrible. There's a joy. There's a feast that's attached to this 11. There's a feast, a celebration attached to getting rid of that which is sin and holding us down. There's a joy and a celebration that comes with purity. And that you're going to guide us and you're going to walk us. And, and it's, it may not be the walk that we had envisioned, but it's a walk that, that you, in your grace, will guide us along. And so teach us, Lord, to trust your, your guiding. We want to be aware of your light, the light of your word, that, that is that lamp unto our, our feet and this light unto our path and, and that ability to walk in such a way that we're not striving, That we're not under the burning sun, but we're there resting under this cloud that you spread for us. And Father, I do pray that you would spread your cloud over our homes and over our lives and over our walks. Oh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.